Hello and welcome to Bombato, the Scandinavian La Liga podcast, or should I say the cursed Scandinavian La Liga podcast, seen as the team in La Liga that has, in principle, the two most exciting Scandinavian players in Spain can't buy a win now, thanks to us, Alexander Jonsson. What's gone wrong, man? I thought it was thanks to us that they were doing so well before, and probably because we went on a break. They didn't really know how to play football anymore because they couldn't listen to us talking about it. I, I think that is the, the answer to your question. So, I mean, for those that are not aware of not been keeping up with this frantic action that we're having in La Liga, we're talking about Real Sociedad, whose last win, I think, now was in, it was before the break, uh, if I remember correctly. And they're in genuine, uh, and by break, I mean the forced break, by the way, the coronavirus pandemic break. And they're genuinely now at a position, I mean, it's still really, really tight, but they've gone from being oh, they're going to take a Champions League spot to being now like, oh, this uh, Europa League spots are a little bit risky now. Like, But with the games coming so thick and fast, thick and fast, it only takes a few bad results in a row and another team or another couple of teams to, to pick up a few good results in a row for your outlook to change really quickly. Here's what I think, though, and I wonder what you think about this. This doesn't surprise me so much, and the reason it doesn't surprise me so much is that I remember around about, I was going to say this time last year, but not this time last year, this time last year and the schedule, so it would have been the spring last year, around about this part of the season, basically. Remember you and I talking a lot about how even though Alguacil just couldn't buy a win at that point, they went on this weird kind of run and I looked it up and it was between March 3rd and April 25th, they went nine league games and they only won once and they lost five of them. So he has a little bit of previous for this. There's something there where his motivation of the team somehow dips a little bit and that was that key moment as well when we were talking, oh, are Real Sociedad (laughs) going to be in a Europa League place and they they couldn't quite make it. So uh, I'm wondering if there might just be a little bit of a trend here with Alguacil. I mean, he could still turn it around, but there's something of a a track record developing there that's a little bit of a concern, I think, if you're a Real Sociedad fan. Yeah, so I see your points, but I'm I'm not really too sure about it because I I just think the entire situation is so strange I think that the the team they have this season and the team they had last season is, is very different and I also think the way that Emmanuel has been coaching Real Sociedad this season compared to last season is very different last season he came in uh, wasn't there from the start and we were very critical to him I was very critical to him and I didn't think like that he managed to get this team to to uh, to perform what they could do and that they didn't have any leadership on the pitch or off the pitch and this season that has been very very different in the signings they did where uh, Odegaard especially has been uh, very much of a leader type on the pitch which was something they were really missing and just some other signings as well and I think it's just a very different type of, of Real Sociedad. So I wouldn't expect this from them. I, I'm genuinely super duper surprised. This is a team that I thought was going to come out of the break the best of all teams, like we've discussed before. They are a young team. They have two players on each, each position. They were in very good confidence. Everything was talking about them. When you were talking to, to journalists and people in San Sebastian, yes, before the break stopped, and we returned, they were talking about this team is going to go there to, to try to get the third spot and the fourth spot is not good enough. And then they come out and we have these three games and I'm just so baffled about it. And again, when I talk to people down in San Sebastian, which I've done before this podcast, just to get a little bit of a feeling, they they don't really know what it is. No one can, everyone is just kind of shocked at the situation because it's not like you can say, okay, but we're doing this and this good. This is okay. This are this is the problem. This is what has to be fixed. It's just like completely, like a completely different team. So, and it's not just that it's one player that is not in form. 
it's basically everyone except for maybe one or two. I think Janusai has looked really good coming back from the break. Uh, I think Mourinho has not looked fantastic, but he's looked better than the others. Uh, had a higher, uh, lower standard, so, so to say. But in general, it's just it's just so hard to to pinpoint what is the problem. And I've been trying to think: has it something to do with the team being so young? That of course this is a new experience for everyone, but maybe more experienced teams can handle with a situation that is coming out of the blue than than a younger team. I'm just don't know what is what has happened with Real Sociedad. They just haven't prepared well enough, I guess, to, to come back from this break. And it's just so strange to me. And the longer it goes on, it seems to be this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy because it's so obvious now that confidence is such a huge issue for them. And I think for a team that play the kind of football Real Sociedad do, it's a little bit similar to like Barcelona at their best where you need to be confident or you need to be self-assured to play those kind of more risky passes in the final third that really are the key to like getting chances on goal or not and now you're looking like they're getting the ball out wide and then maybe turning back Porto reminds me right now of Porto last season at Girona who just like was his confidence was so so low that his like impact in the final third was completely null and void and that, that's the opposite to what we saw at the first uh, half of the season here uh, at San Sebastian I, I, and I think that's an issue for them big time I mean they're not playing the right kind of passes at the right time they're taking too long they're too sluggish too predictable and it's almost like the polar opposite of Celta who seem to be now riding this like high wave and you can see that they're just so sure about everything Thing that they're doing and i think you're you're onto me to something there with real sociedad because that's also a thing i, I was thinking about that that for, for many of these teams it's such a weird situation coming back from and it's i think it's natural that maybe you're struggling in your first game back maybe the problem for real sociedad was that they were in such a good form before the break that they had so high confidence and expected so much of themselves uh, i remember from when i was uh, had a acl injury when i was playing football and even though I knew I was not going to be the same when I come back off, came back after the injury, I kind of expected myself to play in the same level and was really upset with myself that I couldn't perform at the same level. And that affected me a lot. And I was thinking a little bit, maybe that is something that's coming into play as well with this younger team that they come out against Osasuna and they kind of expect to pick up where they left off. But there has been a three month break. Um, and they're not at the same level, and then that hits you on the confidence, and then that snowballs into the next match and into the next match. And as you say, now they look, they they look like they don't have any confidence at all, and it's completely different from the confident, happy team that we saw just before the break. So speaking of happy teams, and who we touched on, the team that that won uh, against Real Sociedad, Celta. I mean, it's incredible now looking like they they look like they have so much belief and so much assuredness and they've, they've played two completely different games back to back now one where it was like this attacking assault where you score tons of goals and one now against Real Sociedad where they attacked enough and, and then they got the goal and then they looked so good <laughs> sitting back and, and defending and covering space and like Ido was like a brick wall what a game <laughs> he cleared everything didn't let anyone get past him and that was like pretty much every player across the Celta team uh, yesterday I was like you're doing your job to almost perfect level right now I'm so happy about this, not just because it's the team in the city where I live, but because I've been backing Oscar Garcia, and so have you, from the start. And when he came to Celta, I thought this is the perfect uh, coach for this team. But I also knew that it's going to take time. This is not a coach that goes in and fix a problem overnight, and it's a short-term coach, it's a long-term coach. It's gonna, And it's, the problems are so deep, it's going to take time to, to fix this. Uh, most people want, most fans especially, want to see uh, a change directly. And I've been battling with Celta fans. I've been battling with uh, 
uh, Barca fans who think that uh, that other Barca fans have hyped Oscar Garcia before, and and so and I've just been persistent from the start that just wait and see, be patient, be patient, be patient, and he's been complaining and complaining, and complaining because the results have not been coming, even though I think you have been able to see progress in the way they play, and it's gone little at a time, and now getting these these type of games, it's like the message that Oscar has been working with for so long has finally gotten through. And what we talked about on this podcast before, but I think it's really important to remember with Celta, who a lot of people don't probably don't understand because you just look at the at the squad and see it's amazing players in this team. Why are they at the bottom of the table uh, or in the relegation battle and everything like that? But the problem is what they've gone through. It's a psychological things of going through several coaches where there's been no plan, where there's been no tactic, uh, where the confidence of these players have gone so, so far down. Like it's as far down as it can go. And you've seen a team where, like, you you haven't seen the happiness that we've seen in the last two matches. I haven't seen that at Celta for two years, basically. And there's so many layers to it. It's the psychological part. It's the uh, game part. It's the football part, the tactical part. It's that he got a team that had got... that had got signings and been built, but without an idea. So you have players that doesn't really fit together and stuff like that. And I think that it's been such a long progress to try to fit all this together and get back the the harmony in the team. Um, And it's, it's been a process and it's something that takes time. And it's so, so fun and so glad to be able to see that now, how that is finally coming through. And we saw it first at the Alaves game and I was a little bit worried there because I think Alaves are struggling a lot. And I was worried they were making it too easy. So that maybe it looks like a bigger step forward than it actually is. But then we have the Real Sociedad game. And you say we see completely different aspects in that game. Um, and that is where you see that they have taken a huge step forward. And then the smiles. I think that is super important. The harmony of a team. A team that looks as happy as Celta has been the two last matches. Our team that is going to do some good things forward. Oh, and you have Iago Aspas Bas being brought off... Um fairly early, I guess, by what he would like to do. And no one looks worried. Everyone's like, yeah, it's okay. We, 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 we know what we're doing. They have direction and they have like a real project because the project's not just signing players. It's everything else. It's the energy and the, the focus. They have all of that. And now, like I saw today, I think Lavoste Galicia, that they now genuinely want to try and get Rafinha to a long-term deal. I don't know if they can pull it off financially, but it would be a huge thing for them. And no doubt he's having the most fun and most consistent football that he's had for a long time. And then obviously, you mentioned before, like a few days ago, you said that they're they're now working and it looks like it's going to be wrapped up, right? To tie down Oscar to a long-term contract. It's all good energy coming from Vigo now suddenly. Yeah, so basically they have three main goals that I think are super important. It's to renew Oscar's can- contract, which has... Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid of it, to be honest, because there's been some vibes of what happened with Berisso, where Berisso basically wanted... Uh, to be able to do some specific signings to to create his project in order to take Celta to the next level and the club wasn't ready to to go that far and then Berisso left and that is the biggest mistake that I think Celta has done in, in modern history um, and it, it has felt a little bit like something might be happening uh, like that with Oscar as well because there's been talks that they have been been talking for quite a while now and there still hasn't been an announcement of a new renewal but the latest I've heard is that they are are finally uh, looking to to find an agreement so really hope for for that because i think that would be amazing for celta and for oscar and then the next goal is of course to to get rafinha and something that i saw about that which i also think is quite interesting is i think uh, the fact that 
of the economical situation, financial situation right now for, for Barcelona. Barcelona kind of need those money. Those, so they might be, be open to, to selling him for a cheaper price than they normally would. Uh, and that would be brilliant for Salsa. And then the third one for them is that they need uh, to make sure that they can sa- sign Jason Murillo, who's also on loan at Salta, and has been basically the player who fixed their defense. He's been so important for them this season, and that is a key to to get him uh, for, for a permanent stay in Vigo as well. All right, so staying on Celta, you might have noticed a guy playing in an extremely low-numbered shirt who should have been way higher. I think he was wearing a number three, if I remember it correctly. No, your eyes do not deceive you. It's Nolito. No, he is not a backup goalkeeper, as far as I'm aware. What the hell's going on with this, Alex? You can explain. It's the Brathwaite rule, I guess you could call it, if you like. Yes, basically, it started with, with the shirt number. It's because uh, in Spain, you're only allowed to have a number between 1 and 25 in your squad. You have 25 players and they have to have between those numbers. And Nolito could pick between number 1 and number 3. Uh, so it became number 3. Now, basically, it's the Brathwaite rule, uh, as it's come to be known as. Uh, Celta got a long-term injury on their second-choice goalkeeper, Sergio Alvarez. He basically to a knee, took a knee injury for the team because it was exactly what Celta needed. Uh, no, he, he didn't do it on purpose, but he could have because this is a guy who loves Celta, uh, the Hugo Mayo Aspas level or even more. He, he's crazy about this team. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if he actually did it on purpose, even though I don't think he did. Um, but that meant that Celta could do uh, an emergency signing. Uh, so they obviously went and, and signed a, a striker or a, or a Nulito, as uh, so it's safe to for as their new backup goalkeeper, even though he will not be acting as a goalkeeper. And that, that is the best thing that could happen for, for Celta because, as we've been saying, Oscar has been finding ways and, and getting his message through to this team, but they have been missing something in attack. They've been really good in the defence, uh, have only let in one goal, I think in eight matches or something like that, but they haven't scored goals until that Alaves game. Uh, so they needed something to make a change in the attack and Nolito is exactly the type of player they needed. More than that, uh, bringing Nolito back was cause for celebration in Vigo because he's so loved here and you could feel that that day when they signed him back, it was like Celta were still in kind of a depression phase because that was before the Alaves game and they still haven't gotten a game like that, hadn't gotten the goals or, or a win. So it became like this positive news and suddenly the minds of everyone just seemed to change. Like now we can do it. Now we have Nolito. And he didn't even have to enter the pitch and they started scoring goals in a way they haven't done before. Um, and he's just a different happiness around the team. And I think it's the signing of him. He's a player who's very, very loved among some of the teammates. He's played with Aspas, Rafinha and Santimina before. He's someone who brings happiness. But just the fact of bringing him and knowing that that's what they need gave this optimism that just changed the mind of the team in a way, I think. And that's how it just started. And I, I think that's going to be a key signing for them. But it is a signing that they basically shouldn't be allowed to do because it's such a strange rule. Yeah, it's a bullshit rule. But um, for those who haven't seen much of Nolito outside, because I, I imagine a lot of people might only be familiar with him from the Premier League, for example, if you're new to La Liga. It, we can't overstate just how ridiculously good he was the first time around at Celta. He was also very good when he was at Barca B as well, but in particular at Celta, he was one of the, easy one of the top 10 players in La Liga at his best there. So if he can recover anything like that form, then it will be phenomenal for them. Like I said, he played with the Aguaspas back then. He's played with Rafinha at Celta as well and with Santimina. So it's an easy adaption for him as well with those uh, attacking 
partners. Moving on to someone who has returned to action, who probably the last time he was playing, I would imagine that Nolito was still at Celta, maybe. And I, I don't think it's overstating it to say that before things got really bad for Bruno Soriano and he went through this injury nightmare. For me, he was behind Sergio Busquets only as the best midfield pivot in La Liga. He was outstanding. Um, and then he just kind of disappeared and we all forgot about him really and we all waited for the the comeback and we got sort of signs that he was maybe going to be in training or he was going to be doing this or that and then it was another setback and another setback and then there was even some all kinds of crazy rumours about would he ever play again I don't know about you, Alex. I, I didn't actually expect to see him back in a Villarreal shirt. I think when he was almost back last year um, and then got a setback that forced him to an operation, I think that's the point where I and most people thought that, okay, it's it for, for Bruno Soriano. His contract goes out, I think it's four days from when we're recording this podcast. It's, go, it's going out this summer in 2020. Uh, which means had this pandemic not happened, this break not happened, uh, Bruno Soriano would probably never have played for it in a VRL shirt again either. Uh, so I think he, not even him kind of expected it. He's uh, been trying for so, so long and had so many setbacks. And he said after the match that he has been thinking about giving up so many times, about throwing in the towel. Um, and it's just been setback after setback after setback. And every time something positive was happening. He was afraid of even saying the words that to his family that, you know, it's going in the right direction because he was afraid it would generate in another setback. Got to a point where his parents and, and his siblings didn't feel like they could even ask him questions about his rehabilitation or even mention the word football uh, because that's how the situation was and that's how bad it was. And then somehow... Uh, he manages to come back and we have to remember he's 35 years old. I think most players would have just decided to retire. He has a fantastic career already. 10 seasons, uh, I think it is, uh, after each other at Villarreal with like 30 matches each season, taking them out to, to the Champions League semi-final, to, to success in, in Europa League as well, done great things in, in La Liga, has the most matches uh, in the club's history for Villarreal. So it's not like he had things to prove um, but it's just such a motivational story how he's fight, fought his way back and at 30, 36 uh, finally returns after three years out of, of playing football. He's actually occurs to me someone that we deserve to do something a little bit deeper on at some point because of, of most footballers he has an incredibly interesting story because this is not the first time that he has, let me rephrase that, there has been a time in the past where he gave up on professional football of his own accord and decided he wanted a different, more simple life if you like. And then was sort of coaxed back and it changed. And aside from that, he's he stuck around when Villarreal, probably the most traumatic thing that's happened to him in like the last decade and a bit when they got relegated. And that really earned him a huge uh, place in the fans' uh, heart, I think. So he, he's, a, he's a very interesting character and I hope things work out for him because he's a really sensational footballer who's had a lot of bad luck and really didn't deserve it. I mean, no one deserves it, but especially not someone like him with his character and his dedication and genuine care for the club that he plays for, I think. No, let's make a... Uh... Bruno Soriano episode at some point definitely because there's so much to talk about him so much all right so I care a lot about Bruno Soriano but what I've realized today or yesterday is that I don't why don't I care about the La Liga title race is a better way to put it so I don't want to just say outright that I don't care but I'm looking at it right and it's like it's neck and neck. Only one point could decide this league, basically. Like, if, if Real Madrid drop one point from now on, it could slip from within their graphs. If Barcelona can't make up that margin, can't get ahead because of the head-to-head, -head, they won't be able to, to win the league. And yet, I, 
really am struggling to get myself interested in that. I felt this a little bit last year as well, but there was a sort of brief moment where Atletico Madrid kind of cut the gap a little bit on Barca and, and uh, maybe I got a little bit more intrigued. But uh, the, the thing that worries me most is this is something that's starting to happen year on year for me now. And I think uh, I'm not really sure I've developed my thoughts on the matter too much to understand what it truly is. But I think it's the lack of excitement from both of the teams. Maybe they set too high a standard uh, in the past and has, has raised my expectations to a level beyond uh, realism. But I don't know. It's it's hard for me to get too thrilled about these two guys. What am I wrong? Should I be rethinking my perspective? I mean, you're asking me. Um, <laughs> no, I'm totally agreeing with you. Uh, it's it's been the same for me as I guess most people who follows me on Twitter and listens to this podcast probably have noticed is that I get way more excited about basically all the other teams in La Liga than, than Barca and Real Madrid for for the last couple of years. And I think you're, you're onto it. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that uh, going back a few years, both of these teams were so good. They were so exciting. There was so much happening uh, against uh, around them. The football was so incredible. Not to say that the football is still good when they play. It's not like they are horrible teams in any way. But I think they, they raised the bar uh, a lot, which makes that when we're watching them now, we kind of you, you kind of always get disappointed in one way. Um, and this season, especially, I think both Barcelona and Real Madrid have had really difficult seasons and, and things have not gone very easy for them. They have been struggling, both of them, which makes the, the title battle, even if it's close, I think less interesting. Um, I think we've been onto that before as well, that this should have been the season for any other team to actually challenge for, for a league title, but none of them have, have stepped up to that either. Uh, and that's why maybe that battle isn't that much fun. Uh, at the same time, I think it also might have to do with the, the battle for the European spots being so, so big and the battle for the relegation zone uh, being so many teams included in that. that there's so much action happening in La Liga. So the other things are becomes kind of more excited at least for us, um, than, than the title race. I'd be interested to hear the thoughts of our listeners on this, actually. So you guys can tweet us at Bombathopod. Are we crazy? Or are you guys like super engaged and engrossed in this like neck-and-neck battle between two of the worst, Real Madrid and Barcelona? Two, Real Madrid and Barcelona for the, the league title. If so, you can let us know. And, and, and if you're not, you can explain to us why as well, because maybe we're wrong. We often are. It could be the case. Um, you mentioned about no one else challenger or no one else really taking the opportunity to, to challenge. I think that's part of it. I wonder, had Atletico Madrid realised that Marcos Llorente was a striker at the start of the season, would they be challenging for the La Liga title? Because this is a development that I did not see coming whatsoever. And for those of you that are not familiar, this is Marcos Llorente, who I, I think it's safe to say, I don't know if I would call him an out-and-out -out defensive midfielder, but he has played as a, a deep more conservative midfielder for the majority of his professional career, including when he was out on loan and when he's been at Real Madrid. But pretty much since the Liverpool game, when he almost single-handedly put Liverpool to the sword with an appearance from the bench, he's been playing as like a second striker now for Atletico Madrid. I mean, we haven't mentioned this before really in any great depth. I think we said that maybe last week or the week before, we said that there were sort of rumours that, that Simeone was now genuinely using him there in training and that was where he was going to play. But he's been outstanding. It's absurd. I mean, he looks like he's born to play in that position. He looks way more effective there than, than he did as a, a deeper midfielder for Atleti. I was reading something interesting about this, though, today in El País. Uh, and apparently when he was a kid, when he was in the youth system at Real Madrid, 
he used to play more of a sort of creative midfielder and the guy there was saying that like one of his strengths in that position was how quickly he turns so if he gets the ball to feet he turns super smoothly and super quickly and that was like one of the big things he did but as he became a pro and he started playing for other teams in a more sort of conservative role he, he didn't feel that he could really use that skill in the, the same way and that's exactly what he did for the assist for the, the goal in Atleti's last match because he's higher up the pitch now so it's not so much of a problem if he, he loses the ball he can use a little bit more skill and flair to try and uh, open up the pitch uh, and it's working so it's been super cool I mean really nice as well because he had such a hard time at the start when he went there and any player that goes from Real Madrid to Atletico Madrid is always going to get a bit of a hard time not just uh, from his old club but also from his new club if he doesn't make an impact so yeah, uh, it's uh, an exciting development. I was trying to think of the last time that Simeone like converted a player, and the, the last one I can think of, it, um, there might be one I'm missing here, was Juanfran, who was a winger and ended up becoming, I think, safely one of the best right-backs of uh, his era in La Liga. So it's, it's been a nice development to follow, and Atletico Madrid look transformed. I wouldn't wouldn't have betted on this run of form right now. And I, they, for me now, I think there's I think they'll take third. But I don't. I can't see how they'll let go of it now. It's, they've got too much experience and too much momentum. No, exactly. I, f- I think that it's quite interesting because as we we were waiting for La Liga football to to come back and and trying to speculate what teams were going to come back out of this break the best, and and so. As we said, we, we were expecting Real Sociedad to, to come out really strong and probably be uh, the one main one going for that third spot and, and main battler. But the, the teams that's actually impressed most is probably Villarreal, Sevilla and then Atletico Madrid. And, and as you say, now it feels... And, and Atletico was one of the teams that at least I thought were going to struggle because they just couldn't find a way to score goals. And now with uh, with how they how Simeone has changed the position with Llorente, it's changed everything for Atletico. And now for for me, there is is no question about that they're probably going to take the third spot. Sevilla take the fourth spot, and and Real Sociedad are struggling to just even get the Europa League. So it's I mean it's, it's football. Valencia, it's there, it feels like Valencia are just starting to creep around there, and they might just I don't know as. In the end, I wonder how much um, experience is going to play a part this season because it's been, like you mentioned it before when we were talking about Real Sociedad, it's been such a strange scenario. And I mean, okay, like as Alex Ferguson famously proved, you can definitely win things with kids. But I do think that in a, such an otherworldly situation right now, having a team that's been in around a little bit and kind of knows how to handle different emotional dynamic situations might be worth its weight in gold and i think that's starting to show all right uh you done the you've been doing some good work you put out some shows on twitter to see if we could get some uh, questions from listeners and we did get one and it was a pretty interesting one so shall i read it and then we can both give our answer to it Go so ahead. it was uh maxi right who doesn't use i don't know what his full name is but his twitter handle is at maxi angelo at least um so he asked two things he asked how will losing william carvalho impact betis i don't know if that's been like officially confirmed but it looks like he's going to leeds is it or leicester rather uh and then who is a realistic replacement for ruby so i'll give you my really sharp quick thoughts on these and then you can give me yours because i don't doubt they'll be different uh, my first one is i don't think losing him will impact betis that much because of a number of reasons one i don't think william carvalho has been as good as i expected he would have been there was like so much hype and so much expectations when he came to the benito Marine. and for me he's, he's had spells where i thought he's looked pretty decent but he's not definitely not blown me away um and then the other reason why i don't think it'll impact him that much is because god knows what betis are going to look like next season because <laughs> 
really if we were talking about projects and about direction and that's the thing that i find hardest to find so which brings me on to the the next question about who will replace ruby so if you look at like a study with deportivo today the names of some of the coaches that, that are there have apparently been sounding out if you like are all over the place so there's like marcelino was one who apparently they wanted to speak to which uh was ambitious at best i think considering how well he did in his last job a counter-attacking coach maybe the most pure counter-attacking coach we've had in la liga since jose Mourinho in terms of the kind of football he plays and then the, the other one was manuel pellegrini who is like this super old school kind of free-flowing like four two 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 attacking football coach so Neither of them have anything to do with each other, and I'm wondering, okay. And then the third one I saw was Javi Gracia, who, again, I think is more of a sort of more conservative coach, maybe not quite as strict as uh, someone like like Marcelino, but I don't see any consistency there, so it's very difficult for me to tell you uh, how Betis losing anyone's going to impact them if they don't even really know what they're driving towards. Your thoughts, Alexander Jonsson? Well, I think you're you're summing it up pretty well on on the answers of both those things. That the problem at Real Betis, I think, is the same as at FC Barcelona, and it's that it's not really on the coaching bench. It's my, much higher up. They don't know what they want. They don't know what is the plan, what they are after, what their project is. I think we saw a little bit the same with Celta when they were uh, trying coach after coach after coach without really having a plan of what they actually wanted to do. And the coaches you take up there, uh, the fact that they are so different just shows even more how not prepared they are at Betis, how how the, the club is is so confusing at the moment and how the people upstairs are not really doing their jobs and not really knowing what they want to create. Um, so and and that also answers the, the the previous questions, which is that we don't know what Betis we're going to get next season. We don't know who's going to be on the coaching bench, and therefore it's impossible to say if Carvalho is a player that would have suited well in that, or if he's not. So if he's going to be missed or not, it, it's really hard to say. Um, if I personally could dream about the coach for for Betis, it will be Gallardo, who is currently the coach for River Plate, which I I don't think will ever happen because I think he's too ambitious uh, and wants to. If he's going to Europe, he's probably going to try to go to a club where he can win league titles and stuff like that. But I think it's a, a coach that would have been very interesting to see at Betis and and could create some really good things there. But that's just a, a dream signing that I don't see happening. Uh, so before we wrap up, I thought we could have a really brief segunda brag, if you like. Uh, and I'm going to take my part. So Girona, Girona <laughs> wonderful, wonderful Girona have finally won a match and have therefore tightened. I was going to say their grip, but their fortunate place in a playoff position and those of you who have not been following the, the Segunda this season might think, oh, Girona, they have the best player in the league. They should go straight back up because I don't think it's controversial to say that Christian Stuani is the best player in the second division in Spain. But no, they've, they've made a really good job of bottling it as much as possible. Still, they remain in a playoff spot. They could technically still get automatic promotion, but that's not going to happen. Uh, whether they'll win the playoffs, I don't know. But they won a game of football and I'm happy about that. And um, I have some really nice bragging to do as well with my team, Real Oviedo, who's been struggling so bad this season. It's been, it's been painful watching Real Oviedo this season, match after match. But uh, to be honest, and even after the break, uh, it's been very painful. But they've done really, really well, especially the, the last match they won against. Uh, well, they're actually playing... Yes, after we're recording this, so they're going to have played a game before you listen to this. But the last game uh, since before we're recording this uh, was uh, the Asturian derby, which is obviously huge um, and very strange to have without fans. 
and they won it thanks to an incredible goal of Borja Sanchez. You should look it up. It's on my Twitter. I'm retweeting it all the time, so you're going to see it. It's a brilliant goal. Um, and basically, because you don't have uh, fans in the stadium, you can hear in the sound when he scores the goal. You can hear the after the goal, the sporting goalkeeper scream. Why the fuck is no one taking uh, like uh, kicking them down or something like that? It's brilliant. Um, so that was amazing for for Oviedo, who's been struggling. Like they've, but the thing is, they've been taking points. They've been taking draws, uh, even though they haven't been playing good football. Um, Real Madrid, uh, Loni Lunin, the goalkeeper, has been doing a really, really good job. So for Real Madrid fans, um, just to know. And uh, the fact is that uh, after the break, they're one of the best performing teams uh, when it comes to results in the entire Segunda. They are, and what's saying a lot about Segunda is that Real Oviedo right now, two points above the, above the relegation zone, but they're only nine points away from the playoff spots. That is Segunda. That's but how that- crazy it is. It's, that's classic for that league, but it also tells you why draws can keep you up, but they won't get you a playoff. And that's the big exactly. difference. That's the, you got to start winning matches, but they, they won. And well, by the time this goes out, we'll know a little bit more. But yeah, maybe we'll touch back in on the Segunda actually a few times over the course of this, because it's a league that I have grown to love and hate over the years uh, of following it. There's some amazing things about it. There's some incredibly frustrating things about it, but boring is certainly not something that I would use to describe it. That's for sure. Well, on that note then, I think that's probably enough for this week and we will return next week with more fantastical bombazo uh, podcasting greatness. I urge you, if you have not listened already, to listen to Alex's awesome sit down with Sid Lowe from last week which is evergreen, really. I mean, you can listen to that at any point over the course of the season, and there's plenty of stuff that you can learn from it. And like everyone, if you don't know by now, Sid is an absolute encyclopedia of Spanish football, so it's always worth listening to him. Uh, and uh, we're very grateful that he took some time to speak to us. Alexander Jonsson, do you have anything more to add, my friend? No, I used to say that, that yeah, the, the Sid talk is very timeless. Uh, look on the Scandinavian players and, and giving his his not as biased thoughts uh, as ours on, on the Scandi. So that's well worth a listen. And, and obviously he knows his stuff. Uh, but yeah, I think that's it. And we'll be back soon, I hope, uh, with some some more great Bombasso episodes. And uh, don't forget that there is La Liga football on right now. When Whenever you listen, it's probably on right now because it's on every day. Run. <laughs> Run, put on your TV. <laughs> <laughs>